Hong Kong's new security law has brought about several concerned voices both in and out of the country. So Beijing claims this new law is crucial to safeguarding Hong Kong's economic development and political stability and that the new security law is needed to stop the type of protests that have occurred since uh, a couple of years ago, and especially during 2019. Uh, this law is superior to all local law and basic law, which is uh, Hong Kong's constitution. Many are concerned for the future of Hong Kong as a financial hub and are worried about the economic impact this law will bring about to the rest of the world. So to uh, give us some analysis on this, very pleased to be joined by the lead analyst for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit, joining us from Hong Kong, Nick Morrow. Hello. Hi there. Hello to you. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Before we get into the economic aspects of this, could you tell us a little bit about how the situation is inside Hong Kong over the weekend with the protests and uh, basically what this national security law means uh, for the day-to-day life of people living there? Sure thing. Well, the most immediate um, and kind of tangible feeling that has come about since the law was passed um, is that it does feel like there's been a chill that's kind of descended over the city. Um, So if you think about the time in Hong Kong this time last year, um, we were seeing protests, which, you know, protest organizers estimated up to 1 million, 2 million people on the streets. And really, I mean, if you you saw the protests in person, you did get that feeling. Um, The crowds on the streets were just massive um, in terms of the protests that were then against this this extradition bill that was Mm. proposed in the legislature. Since then, um, we really haven't seen that type of activity. Um, July 1st, normally, is uh, a day of annual protest in Hong Kong. Uh, but considering that that was the first day that the law was enacted, um, you, you, again, you just, you just didn't see the same level of activity. And I think a lot of people have been quite scared, or at least you know, quite rattled um, in terms of what this means, particularly because people don't really know how the law is going to be implemented yet. There's a lot of, I think, uh, a lot of things purposely kept vague in terms of um, what might might be considered uh, an, uh, an offense under the law mm. in order to um, keep people from from coming back out. But that's the most uh, tangible effect. And really, since then, despite all the controversy, we haven't seen the level of protests or activism on the street um, despite the law's passage last week. You mentioned this big chill. Is that uh, universal? Because uh, I understand that how the people feel, especially the protesters, and how the, the business community or, or the elites, uh, they might have differing uh, opinions in regards to this. Would you say that there is a distinction there? There is. Um, you talk to kind of the everyday person on the street, and I mean, you do get that sense of somewhat of a bit of a foreboding. Um, not sure uh, what the future might hold. And this ranges from anyone who's, you know, a local to an expat to a journalist to a banker. Um, but the distinction between a private citizen and maybe, you know, what a company's official stance is quite noticeable. Before the law came into effect, um, we did have several companies proactively come out say, and say that they were in support of the law. And they were doing so before, you know, the text of the law was even made public. Um, we really didn't have a sense of what the law actually, you know, was going to, you know, encompass right until um, the evening that it was released. And so that level of support was quite noteworthy. Um, I think that if you do look at what a lot of businesses are saying, um, the protests that have rocked the city since last year have had quite a strong macroeconomic impact on Mm. Hong Kong. Um, There does seem to be this idea that businesses want things to return to normal just so that they can kind of safeguard their operations, particularly with the uncertainty around COVID-19 now. Um, And so that does explain some of the dissonance there. 
Um, but it, I think what we're looking at in terms of the broader macroeconomic picture is um, there's been a lot of discussion how this is going to change Hong Kong's future. The EIU doesn't expect Hong Kong to witness an immediate exodus of capital and talent from the mm. city. Um, people are still kind of holding their breath to see what happens there. But we are expecting near-term inbound capital and talent flows to maybe be a bit dampened as is that people wait and see and might kind of reassess their position in the Hong Kong market to see how this law interacts with other pieces of legislation in Hong Kong and what that might mean for particularly multinational business. Now, China will say that this is fear-mongering, but uh, the law is um, deemed to be forcing people to basically choose a side, right? Self-preservation or stand up for what you believe in. Uh, can you talk about Article 38? Because uh, I think a lot of people are worried that uh, this could apply to offenses committed outside the region by somebody who may not even be a Hong Kong native or, or resident. Yeah, that's one of the most baffling aspects of the law, actually. Um, as it's written, it does indicate that if you're not in Hong Kong and you do something that could be deemed as punishable by the law, you still might be subject to it. But the big question is, how are you going to enforce that if you're, you know, uh, you know, the authorities in China or Hong Kong? Um, if you're a critic who's located in the U.S. or in Canada um, and you say something, what does that actually mean in practice? Mm. I think the big concern is if you're someone who is critical of the Hong Kong government or the Chinese government and you're passing through Hong Kong, um, whether, you know, in transit or you're giving a speech here. And really, I mean, Hong Kong historically has been a place uh, where we see a lot of political, I guess, I guess you could say resistance to the central government. Um, there are events here that are held um, that talk about, you know, the erosion of political freedoms in, in China and Hong Kong. Dissidents have come to the city to speak on those topics. I think now there's a big question of whether the city is essentially still safe for those kinds of people to come. Um, and so if, if, you, if you are a critic of the regime and you're based in another country, you come to Hong Kong to talk about that, you might be at risk of arrest or um, in maybe certain cases, even extradition to the mainland. Um, and so I think that might be what Article 38 is really aimed at. Right. Um, but again, um, <laughs> trying to establish provisions that essentially give you a worldwide jurisdiction, um, it is a bit confusing um, in terms of how this is actually going to be implemented. Well, uh, for the people there, especially the university students who have been on the forefront of this protest movement, a lot of concerns uh, for both the students as well as maybe even the faculty in terms of what they can lecture, lecture and talk about. Uh, well, I, I, the idea that uh, you have to now be very careful of what you teach and what you talk about. Are any implications in your view in terms of academia? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mentioned before that Hong Kong has been um, somewhat of a base for essentially freedom of expression in this part of the world. Um, and Hong Kong is home to a lot of political dissidents who have left mainland China. Um, as part of that, there is a very strong culture of free speech here. Um, and a lot of that comes through the universities. And if you look at some of the protests as well, I mean, the protests have primarily been driven by young people, many of whom are, are students um, at the, you know, the colleges here. Um, I think the most immediate effect um, is going to, again, put a chill on, on that component of people who are protesting. But you mentioned faculty. I think there is a very big question now of what is essentially safe to talk about. 
Um, again, I should emphasize we are still very much in the early stages of understanding this law. Mm. Uh, we don't really have clarity on uh, what can be said, what can't be said. But over the weekend, we've seen reports that some of the books um, published by pro-democracy figures, I'm talking Joshua Wong, for example, in some of Hong Kong's libraries, those books have already been taken off the shelves. Mm. And that's worrisome. Um, that That is an active example of censorship. Um, whether or when it extends to academia, uh, that's going to be quite critical. Um, and I think that's going to be something that a lot of us will need to keep a very close eye on, because once we start to see that censorship emerge in academia, then it'll very quickly emerge in other parts of everyday life. Um, one of the big worries in the commercial sector, for example, is um, say in the mainland, for example, if you publish a report that's too critical of the Chinese economy, you could get in a bit of trouble. In Hong Kong, you don't have those restrictions. Right. If that kind of dynamic were to emerge in the city, then that could have some pretty severe consequences for the lifeblood of Hong Kong's economy. When we talk about the economic impact, you did mention on a macro level that uh, you're going to have to wait and see to see uh, what effect it would have on potential capital flight. But uh, this idea of an Asian financial hub, there are a lot of uh, places that buy for that title. Singapore, uh, to a lesser extent, even uh, Seoul would like to be considered a, a hub. Uh, Tokyo, Hong Kong, losing its status as a financial hub, it, it would have been deemed to be maybe unthinkable uh, a decade ago. Do you think that is possible, or is it too soon to to kind of come to that conclusion? Uh, we do think that it is a valid risk that people need to be thinking about. Um, we talk to clients and multinational companies and a number of other people uh, who are thinking about their own Hong Kong strategy and discussions around moving to Singapore, for example. Um, those have picked up in the past couple of months. I mean, we started seeing that, you know, last year when the protests first started, but just in the past two weeks alone, um, that conversation has kind of reemerged. Um, and so there is this idea of, uh, you know, what alternatives to Hong Kong might be. And if you think about the region, I mean, if you want to be in Southeast Asia, for example, you think about Singapore. Yeah. If you want to be in mainland China, many companies are already in Shanghai. Um, if you want to be in Northeast Asia, you think about Tokyo or Seoul. I mean, Hong Kong's status historically has been some of that gateway to China thing. And really, the, the number one thing that's kept it quite competitive is the fact that it has a separate and distinct, clear legal framework from the mainland. Um, not just in terms of the fact that you can trust the courts uh, not to be swayed by you know, the political opinions of the government, but also the fact that you can rely on things like the free flow of information. Um, and that ties not just to things like censorship, but also the you know, things like cross-border data flows, technical things that have emerged um, as issues in China's operating environment over the past couple of years. Um, and so that's really what, what the question is. Um, you, you have these options here in, in other cities um, in terms of you know, being a relatively open economy, um, in terms of finance and trade and, and information. You can see that in Singapore or Seoul or Tokyo or even places like Kuala Lumpur or Taipei. Um, that China relevance um, is the big question now. Um, if Hong Kong's one country, two system frameworks ends up being eroded and Hong Kong ends up becoming just another Chinese city, what's, what's kind of the special status that it still has? I mean, that's, that's a big question. I think we're still... I think, years away from that fully going away. Beijing recognizes that Hong Kong's um, competitiveness in areas of, again, this clear legal environment, um, they don't want to touch that. They don't want that to go away because it is such a driver of capital. But this national security law could undermine a lot of that. 
And that's something that you know, companies like the EIU are going to be really closely monitoring in the immediate future. Uh, and final question, the international reaction to this widespread condemnation, of course, but the, the U.S. Uh, moving to remove special st- trade status for Hong Kong, the U.K. Uh, granting or offering uh, visas for Hong Kong residents who want to perhaps uh, find safe harbor there. Uh, how do you assess the international community's um, reaction to this and what do you think is going to happen going forward? Yeah, well, we're very worried, particularly in terms of what this means for U.S.-China relations. Um, we've been following the deterioration in, in U.S.-China ties very closely since the trade war began in you know, 2018. Um, and since then, uh, we have seen quite an intensification in non-trade areas. And so I'm trying to get at is, is sanctions, essentially. So the most immediate topic that we're looking at is how the U.S. might respond to all of this in terms of financial measures that it could take against entities based in Hong Kong. And by entities, I mean individuals, companies, government officials, things like that. We just saw in the U.S. um, a bill pass Congress in terms of uh, putting sanctions on companies and individuals that might be eroding Hong Kong's autonomy. That bill has already reached uh, President Trump's desk. It could be passed into law relatively quickly. If that were to happen, it would pave the way for U.S. financial sanctions on Hong Kong, which is something that is pretty unprecedented and could deal a lot of damage um, because of Hong Kong's status as an international financial center. Um, and so for U.S.-China ties, the outlook looks quite bleak. And everything you mentioned as well in terms of what the British are doing in response to this, what the Australians are doing, the Canadians, um, this is going to weigh on China's diplomatic relations a lot more broadly. Um, particularly as we see a very more, much more aggressive kind of streak of foreign policy uh, settle uh, in the Chinese foreign policy framework. Um, and so uh, moving forward, issues around you know, economic tensions, political tensions, even security tensions, these are all going to come to the fore and it is going to potentially present a very worrisome dynamic for the region. Yeah, uh, and not including, of course, uh, the concerns uh, that uh, people here in Korea have uh, been expressing in terms of the economic impact and, of course, uh, the wider uh, kind of diplomatic uh, hassles that uh, you have meandering between uh, the U.S. security interests and, of course, uh, the importance of uh, China as a trade partner. All right, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Nick Merrill, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate your insights. My pleasure.